Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch that you can use for your group as soon as tonight. This season, we're building our campaign for the Deadlands Classic game, so if you're looking for an adventure in the Weird West, you have come to the right place. As I usually do as we open the show, I'll remind you to grab your copies of the Player's Guide and Marshall's Handbook, since I reference those books quite a bit during this build. And in what has become a recurring theme the past few weeks, I need to start with cleaning up a few mistakes I made during last week's build. I seriously need to get a better proofreader. It was pointed out to me more than once that through the entire build last week, I didn't assign a number of fate chips to be given to the players for successfully completing their encounter with Shelby Green and his pack of walking dead. So let's correct that here. If they successfully handled the deal, give everyone in the group a blue chip, a red chip, and a white chip. They were captured but still tried to deal with things, cut that to a red chip and two white. One other thing that was pointed out to me was that I said something about all of the roles during the negotiation needed to be opposed roles. Then I said something about setting a target number. Disregard the target number. All of the roles need to be opposed. Finally, it was pointed out to me that when we were building Shelby Green out that I'd said something about giving him some powers of a more homebrewed variety, and then I didn't do that. The only thing I can say about it is that it was my intention to do so, but once I got down to choosing things, I realized the rules provided everything we needed to flesh him out, with the only homebrewed item we need being his ability to raise the dead. So just go back and see last week's episode if you're a bit fuzzy about exactly why things went the way they did. Okay, so with my mistakes corrected, let's get into this week's new stuff. Before we do that, though, we need to recap what we built last week. We began last week's build by building the character of Shelby Green. Once that was done, we addressed the face-to-face showdown between Shelby and his walking dead versus the players. We also noted that Shelby's sole focus was on acquiring the files from Leroy Stewart's safe, so as long as he got those, he wasn't really concerned about the group. Once he got the files, Shelby took off for Portland, most likely with the group hot on his heels. Once he got there, he checked into Sutter's Inn, where he got a message that caused him to leave the inn. From there, he headed to the Church of Everlasting Love, where he met a group of heavy hitters, then headed inside. We also discussed the possibility that the group had been captured and escaped, in which case they entered the city just as the massacre at the church concluded. In that case, Shelby Green was doing his best to convince the citizenry that the group was responsible for what had occurred. So, that is where we pick up this week. At the moment, we have two separate threads we're working on, so I'll address them one at a time. At the end, they should be tied together, so this will ultimately all make sense regardless of which way things went. And before we continue, should your group have come into town without trailing Shelby, they'll hear the gunfire at the church, which should have them running towards it to see what's up, and that will put them into the second group of today's build. But we're going to build out that first possibility before we do anything else. We paused the build just as Shelby and his hired guns went to enter the church. Now, the group can choose to crawl the group out. As a reminder, we're using the gunslinger template from the player's handbook for these hired guns, and Shelby's character sheet is available for you on the website at badgmproductions.net. We also noted that there are two more bad guys in the crowd than there are players in the group, so set your numbers accordingly. Shelby will entertain comments from the group for a moment, but just a moment. He'll quickly get bored and order his men to fire. 
When they do, he'll cast his protection spells on himself and run into the church. The group should be busy with the shooters, but should one or more of them decide to move in on Shelby, they'll be the immediate focus of all the shooters. Think of it like this. If the shooters aren't going into the church to do the deed that Shelby needs done, they're going to make sure he's got the time he needs to get it done himself. So they're going to do whatever it takes to give him that time. If ever there was an opportunity for you as the GM to be ruthless, this is it. They will make darn sure that nobody gets into or out of that church. And it won't take long for Shelby to do what he needs done. Right after he enters, they'll hear the entire congregation start singing a song. One round later, the singing abruptly stops. They don't see Shelby exit the church, but you and I both know he gets out of there. For the record, he uses a door at the rear of the church and works his way around the perimeter of the fighting to prepare for what he's going to do next. Now, a gunfight in the streets of Portland will most assuredly draw the attention of the authorities, and they'll be on the scene just as the fight ends. How it goes from here depends on how long the gunfight lasted. If it was over in less than three rounds, it'll be the group, any gunslinger still alive, and the law dogs. By the way, use the law dog template from the player's handbook, and there will be a town marshal and two assistants in the contingent. They will, of course, want to know exactly what in the name of sanity happened here, and of course the group will be doing everything in their power to explain to them that very thing. Shelby Green will show up partway through the discussion and will lay the persuasion on thick to lay out his take on things, which is that the group is completely responsible for what happened, and will suggest the law dogs check the church because it's worse than they think. The persuasion role from Shelby will be opposed by the law dogs scrutinize, and there will be only one role for the three of them, because the marshal will be the one calling the shots. If Shelby succeeds, the marshal will become a bit more hostile towards the group, and any further rolls they make, opposed or not, will be made at a minus three penalty. However, should the law dogs succeed, they're going to be skeptical of Shelby, who will choose to not push his point with the marshal. He'll take a few steps back and use his overall tied into the voice, and will begin preaching to the assembled masses. It'll go a little something like this. Brothers and sisters of Portland, we have been invaded by men who wish to suck the very soul from our fine city. On top of that, they wish to deceive our poor marshal and his men so they may be allowed to walk away from the damage they've caused without consequences or retributions. Now I ask you, dear friends, are we going to allow this to happen? Now you can make your role before the speech if you'd like, and you can also alter or adjust that to your personal style. The role is overall, and using the voice, Shelby gets a plus two to his role. He's got five points in overall to begin with, so he's adding seven to his highest die roll. Since he's got 4d12 in Mian, which is the attribute overall falls under, he's rolling 4d12 and adding 7 to the highest roll. So, dear friend, what this means is that our occultist voodoo pseudo-priest has got one heck of a chance of pulling one over on the assembled masses. Since the marshal doesn't seem to believe him, we'll put the target number to 14. Success means the assembled crowd agrees with Shelby, and it's painfully obvious there's about to be a mob. If that happens, the marshal and his men flee for the safety of the jail, and the group would be wise to cut and run. However, if it just so happens that Shelby fails, and I would strongly encourage you to spend white chips to ensure this doesn't, but that's just me, the crowd is going to turn on Shelby, who will cut bait and run like heck for the city limits. We'll get back to him in a minute. Okay, I need to back up a half step because I realized I didn't really lay out what happens if the group keeps pushing their luck with the marshal. Well, I mean, I noted he'd become a little more hostile towards the group, but as things go on, it's going to become much more obvious that the group is getting this close to being arrested. So they're going to have a choice to make. Try to continue to plead their innocence, 
gun down a lawfully acting town marshal and his men, or turn tail and run. Now look, I don't know what decision your group would make, but I can tell you, gunning down a town marshal is not a choice my group would make. Worst case scenario is that they'd allow themselves to be arrested and either pray for a miracle or try to figure out how to escape. More than likely though, they'd do everything they could to talk their way out of things long enough to get out of town where they could regroup and figure out their next move. Okay, so all of this is what happens if the gunfight lasts less than three rounds. What happens if it gets three rounds or longer? First off, Shelby's already preaching when the marshals show up. However, instead of using the voice and overall, he's laying the persuasion on thick, and he's got five points in that along with the 4012 and me in. His words are softer and calmer as he's trying to garner sympathy for the dead from the crowd. And since he portrays himself as a Portlander, he'll spin it as us against the evil forces from the East who want to change our way of life. The target number for the crowd is a 12, and it's persuasion versus scrutinize for the marshal. Success and failure work the same way as in the other scenario. Either the group needs to cut and run, or Shelby's going to need to. This will get us on to the next part of the scenario, which we'll hit up in a minute or so. There's one other thing I think we need to address here. What if a group member hits that one in a million shot and takes Shelby out before he gets inside the church? In that case, a massive cloud erupts from his body, and it works like the contagion spell, only twice as powerful. It'll affect the group, the gunslingers, and everyone inside the church. So Shelby will still accomplish what he wants. He just won't live to see things through to their conclusion. And if by chance a group member or two head into the church and do this, same result. I know you're looking at all of this and you're thinking the exact same thing. We've presented our group with a scenario where it's impossible to save the couple. You're right. What the group does not and cannot know is that Ed Stewart already put things in motion before Shelby was summoned. In other words, he already planted the dynamite, wired it up, and connected the plunger. Shelby's job is to push the plunger, in a manner of speaking. Whether he lives or he dies, the plunger gets pushed. Now, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get an argument or two from some of my group, but since this isn't something I'm running off the cuff, I have no problem speaking the words of that last point I made. Call it a behind-the-screen moment, if you will. Sometimes you have to do that so your group members don't think you're just trying to railroad them for no good reason. Remember, Ed Stewart is a very bad man. And we also have to remember that villains don't see themselves as villains. They think that what they're doing is noble, typically, and that they're working towards some sort of bigger, better thing. Granted, they tend to use some questionable methods to try to achieve that, but more often than not, they still believe they are in the right. So... What happens if the group escaped the clutches of the walking dead after being captured? <laughs> yeah, let's move on. I kind of changed gears without shifting. As we mentioned at the end of last week's build, Shelby's already hard at work convincing the town people that the group is responsible for the slaughter at the church. First things first, though. I know you're wondering how that's even going to be logical, since we also stated that Shelby didn't get his orders until he'd been inside the inn for an hour. Again, this is where a bit of GM fiat and creative storytelling come into play. In this scenario, the letter was waiting for Shelby when he got there, so in the time it took the group to break free from their captors, Shelby had already done the deed and had plenty of time to start working up a defense. Again, he'll start with persuasion on the crowd, and will move to overall with the voice if it doesn't work. No law dogs involved here. They're busy trying to figure out what they're dealing with, and since there were no gunshots, they actually had to be called in to know that there was something wrong. Now, once the crowd turns, and they will, the group will be left with only one choice, and that's run. Remember, when they escaped the walking dead, they did it without weapons, since their weapons were still being held by them. Now, if your group figured out a way to overpower the walking dead and get their weapons back, kudos to them for that. If we're being honest, though, they're still not going to help. 
I mean, what are they going to do? Open fire on the innocent citizenry of Portland? (laughs) Yeah, no, I think not. So their only choice is to turn around and run. Fortunately for them, the mob's only going to chase them for about a mile or so. After that, they'll begin to wonder why they're chasing people through the woods and they're going to turn and go back to Portland. That gives the group some time to regroup and replan. And now they'll need a plan. I mean, they have no idea where Ed Stewart is. The best leads they had either just got killed or were part of the plot to get him out of town. We do need to reward our intrepid adventurers with some chips, so let's break it down like this. If they escaped The Walking Dead and made it into town, they get a red and three white. Any other method used to get into the city, since it ended with them getting to the church and being involved with all of that, they get a blue, two red, and three white. So, what's next? Honestly, at this point, I'm not even sure. So we're going to pause this here and we're going to pick up next week. There is another possible thread we need to cover. And I want to get into that this week because it definitely plays into the scenario we just covered. Let's back all the way up to last week's build. If you'll remember, I noted then that there was the possibility of the group killing Shelby Green. Obviously, if Shelby's dead, what we just cooked up can't happen. So we're going to need an alternate scenario. I bet you thought I'd forgotten about that. Well, considering I've been forgetting things all over the place the past few weeks, I I certainly don't blame you for that. With Shelby dead, they've still got the folders on hand, so they know everything except the part about Sutter's Inn. However, as I noted last week, if you've got a character with the ability to speak with the dead, they can get that little nugget as well. Knowing the end, though, doesn't really matter because the files have the name of the church in them, so the group has a destination. It'll be a two-day trip to Portland, so as per our original notes, they'll get there shortly after daybreak on day three. They can enter town and will more than likely head directly to the church. When they approach, they'll find the gunslingers just outside the church, ready to take action. Again, there are two more gunslingers than there are group members, so just run it like we laid it out before. The aftermath will also begin the same way as we laid it out. The big difference here is that Shelby won't be around to toss monkey wrenches into the mix. Plus, unbeknownst to them, they've got a guardian angel who will step in at some point during the discussion with the marshal. She's an older woman, looks to be at least 70, but the creases on her face tell far more tales than that. Her silver hair is pulled back into a very tight, very uncomfortable bun atop her head, and she's dressed very conservatively in a long black skirt and a billowy white top with the collar all the way up the neck. She calls out to the marshal before she approaches, and he refers to her by her name as Shelby. Yup, we found Shelby Simmons. She will speak to us exactly what she witnessed, and since her story will pretty much match the groups, the marshal will eventually cave and work to clean up the mess outside the church. Shelby will invite the group into the church, noting that she knows why you're here, dearies. She apologizes for meeting with them alone, but notes that dear Morgan died about a month ago. He kept waiting for your arrival, but his poor body just couldn't hold out any longer. If they ask, she'll tell them that per his wishes, his body was cremated and his ashes spread over the top of the church. Now, by now, your group's going to be completely lost, so she's going to take time to explain. About 10 years ago, she and Morgan began having the same visions, a group of men that would be coming to save them from their horrid pasts. However, the only way the group could save them was if they turned their lives around and worked for the betterment of all. So they turned their lives over to Christ. What they found, though, was that most of the men who claimed to be men of God were actually men of gold, using their positions to grift their followers out of their hard-earned cash. After years of trying to fix the messes various preachers had caused, they finally came to the conclusion that the Christian church just wasn't going to work for them. So about a year and a half ago, the solution came to Shelby in a vision. Instead of preaching hell and damnation, the solution was love and acceptance. That's where the name of the church came from, and she and Morgan have been preaching those tenets ever since. 
Six months ago, they became aware that their son, Michael, who they'd been forced to place in an orphanage when they went to jail, was looking for them. However, Morgan had a vision that let him know that Michael wasn't looking for them to make up for lost time, but rather to kill them in some sort of vengeance quest. Shortly after Morgan's death, a very odd woman made her way to town. She claimed to be on her way to Russia, though Shelby has no idea why anyone would want to go to that god's forsaken place. This lady called herself the Widow and told her that if she could just hang on, the men she and Morgan had been waiting on would come. She described them in great detail, and that let Shelby knew that the Widow was on the level. Now, Shelby isn't afraid of death. On the contrary, after the death of her beloved Morgan, the only two things she was holding on for were the arrival of the group and word on their missing daughter, Katie. By this point, your group's probably going to have that, what, look on their face? So let's have Ms. Shelby explain. She'll tell them that 25 years ago, she and Morgan were blessed as she became pregnant with what turned out to be a healthy baby girl. She and Morgan raised her the best they could, though their past would occasionally come back to haunt them, and they'd been arrested for the final time 11 years ago. When that happened, Katie was left to fend for herself as she wasn't home when the authorities came for them. When they were released six months later, Katie was gone. She and Morgan spent a year traveling the country looking for her, but to no avail. If the group asks for a description of Katie, Shelby will speak of the blonde-haired, emerald-eyed 14-year-old girl she remembers. She'll also describe the very odd smile she had, which is believed to be due to complications due to Shelby's age. Have the group make knowledge checks. If anyone took knowledge triumph at some point, let them add that in. The target's a 15, and that's because we're going way back in the campaign for this little nugget. Also, I can't come up with the words to describe how different Katie's smile is, but while it's not scary or ugly, it's definitely unusual and therefore memorable. It's the combination of the eyes, the hair, and the smile that causes whomever succeeds the role to realize they've seen someone who matches that description. Kate Sinclair, the United States Marshal who put them on the trail of the widow in the first place back in Triumph. If they remember this, they can tell Shelby. She'll smile, happy in the knowledge that her daughter made something of herself. However, she'll also get worried, noting that if Michael finds her, gods only know what he'll do. She'll try to get the group to promise they'll look out for Katie Sinclair. And once they do that, she'll smile again, nod, and pass away. It's as if once she heard her daughter was okay, she just kind of flipped the switch and shut everything off. The group can choose to bury her if they'd like, but if they remember what Morgan had done, it might occur to them she'd want the same thing. The local undertaker will be more than willing to help them with that, and he won't even charge them. Though if they'd be willing to give him some money, he certainly isn't going to turn it down. That'll leave him with a name, but absolutely no idea where to start looking for her, since the last they heard, she was searching everywhere for the widow. So we'll pause this one where it is, because there's one final scenario thread we need to tie up before we wrap it up for the week. Heading back to the encounter earlier, if Shelby failed to get the group arrested or hung by the mob, he's going to be on the run. Now the group can chase him, and they'll catch up with him in his walking dead, if there are any left, just outside of town. This will be a quick battle, most likely, and Shelby will have some dying words for them. You can't save them all. One left. Have them make cognition rolls with a target of 10. We might want to make this easy on them since we really want them to succeed. It occurs to them that they might want to head back to the church and take a look around. By this point, the town has gotten most of the mess cleaned up, and the marshal is willing to allow the group to take a look around the church, especially since he has no clue what he's dealing with here. Once they're inside, they'll eventually make their way to the small room in the back of the church that Shelby was living in. It's simple, a bed, a dresser, and a nightstand. 
On that nightstand is her diary, and as they read through, they'll eventually get the story of Katie. Again, have the group make their knowledge checks, and if they succeed, they'll make the same connection as described before. That leaves them with the same issue they had before, but at least now we've got some threads tied back together. And so that's where we're going to stop the build for this week. Next week, we hit the backstretch of the final lap of the campaign. We'll get our group on the way to Kate Sinclair and what they hope will be the final showdown with Ed Stewart. However, you know we're not done with this week's show. My group played last week, so we need to get into what they did so we can see how we did with our build. Before we do that, though, we need to recap what they did in their last session two weeks ago. We started with the group landing in their airship just outside the small Wyoming town Amani Lato had suggested they head for. From there, they made their way into town on foot, got to the house she'd pointed out, and got inside and got a lot of information about Ed Stewart and the board's various dealings. They also found out that Stewart and Brigham Young had apparently made a deal by which Young would have the group brought to Utah, where he'd more than likely have them killed and deal with both his and Stewart's problem at the same time. About the time they were taking that in, a regiment of the Nauvoo Legion attempted to arrest them. Gabe forged a pardon from Young, the commander bought it, and the Legion left town to return to Utah. The group left town too, but their flying machine had been damaged, so they bought horses and headed back to Billings to follow up on a lead they'd gotten in Wyoming. When they got there, they found Amani Lato's ranch burned to the ground. She appeared from hiding just outside the ranch, laid out what happened, and fingered Stuart for the deed. She pointed them in the direction of Salem, Oregon, noting it was Stuart's hometown. Before the group left Billings, there was some discussion about what to do with the files they'd taken from the board office in Wyoming. Ultimately, it was decided to destroy them, though the key to a safe deposit box would be kept as a potential bargaining tool. The group rode for Salem, and when they arrived, they noticed there was nobody in the streets. They headed for a tavern, and the barkeep noted that it happens about twice a month. He wasn't able to explain why he doesn't run off, but he suggested that they speak to the mayor. They did, and he explained it was Ed Stewart coming home to check on the house or some such thing. They headed for a local diner where the waitress laid out Stuart's troubled childhood and even pointed out that Ed had been adopted. From there, the group headed for the Stuart home. They found three files laying out Ed's adoption as well as the current whereabouts of his biological parents. Scott used his ability to speak with the dead to speak with Lenny Stewart, who told them that Ed had killed him and that he also hadn't been the same since he got back from New Orleans about 20 years ago. He'd gotten involved in voodoo and the like. And that was where we ended the last session. Now, before I start this week's game recap, we need to note that Tyler was out again this week, but Clayton joined us again, though this time he played a character of his own creation that's based on the player's handbook template of a man in black. If you're curious about that type of character, you can check it out in the player's handbook. Okay, so we begin the session with the group, minus Clayton's character, since he wasn't with them just yet, leaving the house with the files in hand. Shelby Green and his walking dead were coming up the walkway towards the group. Shelby got his comments about handing the folders over out when Jim decided he'd heard enough and attempted to shoot Shelby in the head. I already had both of his protections up, so no damage was done. This was when the fight began, and I'd pulled Clayton aside before we began and told him he'd be coming up behind the bad guys as the combat commenced. Everybody in the group was focused on Shelby, since he was obviously the most powerful being there, and I was having no luck hitting anyone with the Walking Dead I was running. Then again, Shelby had a bad role for his initiative and couldn't hit anything either. What didn't help the group was that they were all taking called shots to the head, so they were taking a minus eight penalty to their attacks, which combined with the negatives they were already getting from Shelby's protection made it darn near impossible for any of them to hit. 
Jim had an overwhelmingly lucky couple of rolls and managed to make one wound to the head stick, but that was pretty much it. So realizing that a slog like this would most likely end with my entire group dead, I called an audible. Even though the book doesn't say it, I decided that all of Shelby's protections were set up in front of him, since that's where his attackers were. I'd also decided he hadn't used his foresight recently, so he wasn't aware of Clayton being on the trail. So when Clayton finally got his shots with his Gatling pistol, he managed to do enough damage to blow out the voodoo practitioner's chest. After that, the tide of the fight changed, and the group made short work of the walking dead. Post-fight, the rest of the group and Clayton did introductions, and Clayton admittedly made an opening blunder by taking his man in black thing a bit too far. When asked his name, he at first told the group it wasn't any of their business, but I think he caught the feeling really quick that being too mysterious with the group would probably result in him getting shot, so he gave his name and noted that he'd been tracking the group for some time. Now, Jim tends to be a bit skeptical about these things, especially since he knows that in the past I've tried to tie things together that can't really be tied that way. However, I pointed out that pretty much everything the group's been doing recently has appeared in the papers. Denver, Little Rock, Albuquerque, Dodge City, Deadwood. Billings is probably the only thing that hasn't shown up. So if someone who's a decent tracker wanted to follow them, they had plenty of information to go on. I did agree that the majority of those things were done while Jim's character was away, so the rest of the group at that time had gotten a little bit too seen for anybody's tastes. I don't think Jim was overly happy with the explanation, but to his credit, he rolled with it. The group as a whole decided to go get a drink and consider their next steps. While discussing it, Gabe suggested to Scott that he really needed to speak with Shelby's spirit to see what was going on next. Reluctantly, Scott agreed and the group went back. Speaking with Shelby, he got the Sutter's in clue and Gabe got a chance to sketch out the sigils on Shelby's body. Gabe then made some knowledge rolls and figured out that, based on what he'd seen to this point, the sigils he could figure out were Control, which were on the talisman Scott had in his pocket, Containment, which were on the barn in Deadwood, and protection, which were on Shelby. However, Gabe also noted that the reason Shelby wasn't protected from Clayton's shots from behind was that there was an error in closing one of the sigils, and that left him vulnerable from the back. That was my in-game reason for Shelby's protections not working the way they should have. Scott then started wondering aloud about how one might activate these sigils for themselves. Clayton pointed out that the way you would do that would be to use the blood of innocence. While everybody knew how Shelby and Stuart would do that, they wondered for a brief moment if it would be possible to get samples of blood from children without harming them, of course, so they could use it. However, the ridiculousness of asking parents if they could draw blood from kids quickly caused them to drop the plan. At that point, Scott decided to hand the talisman over to Clayton, who took it in his black-gloved hand. In an attempt to lay the foundation for his character being extra mysterious, I noted that when Scott put the talisman in his hand, all of the voices in his head went completely silent for a few minutes. Taken aback, he stared at Clayton for a really long time. However, after a few moments, the voices returned and Scott said he was feeling a lot more normal. The group decided that their next move needed to be Portland, and since they were riding on horses, they got there shortly after dark the same day. They checked into Sutter's Inn, and since they knew Shelby Green wouldn't be showing up, they bribed the man at the desk to let them know when Green's message came along so that they could, quote, pass it on to the man themselves, end quote. While they waited, they checked out Shelby's room. I laid it out as very minimalist and noted that other than about a hundred bucks in cash and a couple of black suits, there was no indication that Shelby ever actually stayed there. 
I specifically noted that it appeared that Shelby comes to the room and then leaves almost immediately, and it's probable he never actually sleeps there. Just as they were wrapping that up, they heard the desk man knocking on one of their room doors to let them know the note arrived. Gabe went down to collect it, came back to the group, and they read the letter. It said, 8 a.m., Church of Everlasting Love, I'll be sending a team to assist you. The group decided to get dinner and talk about their next steps. Now, Jim pointed out to the group that by team, it would probably be more walking dead since that's the kind of team they encountered Shelby with in Salem. And my group being the types of guys they are, they decided they wanted to head to the church itself to get the lay of the land before the 8 a.m. encounter the following morning. I noted to the group that when they arrived at the church, there were lights on inside. Scott decided he wanted to head in, but Jim was very wary of that call, pointing out that for the last little while, the group had been basically following directions from one spot to another, and it seemed that Ed Stewart always seemed to know where they were at. Now, for the record, part of that is a personal failing of mine as a GM. We'll address that when we do the postmortem on the campaign. However, the other part of that is he's absolutely right. Each time they've completed a task, they get sent to another place, at which point somebody seems to be expecting their arrival. So he didn't want to go into the church and instead kept some of the group with him to keep watch. Scott, Clayton, and Aniston entered the church. This is where they met Shelby Simmons. And she laid out her story like we did in the build earlier in this episode. When the group said they were there to save her, she told them she didn't really want to be saved, that she wanted to be reunited with Morgan, so there was really no need for them to go to all the trouble. Through some discussion, they convinced her that if she lived, she could see Katie in person at some point. When it came to the Katie discussion, as I expected, group members remembered her as Katie Sinclair, the U.S. Marshal they'd seen in Triumph. Clayton also knows her as he's worked with her before. I pulled him aside and I gave him a nugget of information he's sitting on at the moment, which is that he'd worked with her right before he headed to Salem, and she told him she was headed for Kansas City to deal with something. So he knows where she is. He just hasn't told the group that yet. The group took the time to check out the area around the church as their intentions are to set up an ambush for the hired help when they show up in the morning. So I laid out the area. The church sets on one side of a town square. So there's about 50 feet or so of fairly empty space with a church of everlasting love on one side, a government building on the left side, another church directly across from the one they're in on the north side, and a building with a tavern restaurant on the right side. That restaurant has a patio on it with tables, but they're still far enough away for everything they want to do to work. I was asked and I confirmed that there are bell towers on both churches, so the group came up with the following plan. Shelby's going to stay in the group's rooms in the inn tonight, and in the morning, Max will assume her identity and head into the church. Jim will take post in one tower, with one of the others with rifle skills taking the other bell tower. The rest of the group will spread out around the other buildings so they can surround the attackers if need be. Jim also had the idea to bury single sticks of dynamite around the square so they could be detonated by gunshot if need be. And for the record, Aniston also had that same thought. He mentioned it shortly after Jim did. When the argument was made that you'd be unable to figure out where those sticks of dynamite were, Jim and most of the other group kind of pointed out, this is going to be quick and dirty on the setup, so the ground's going to be disturbed where the dynamite was. Scott also asked, though, are there like bushes and rocks and things out in the square that you can use as obvious markers, i.e. go a foot to the right from the rock, there's dynamite. I said, why not? So they're going to do that as well. So it's going to make it really easy for them to figure out and remember where they put the dynamite. So with the plan in place, they all returned to the inn for the night. And that was where we ended our session for the night. Next week is a build-only episode as we make our way ever closer to the end of our campaign. 
It should be an interesting build considering where we left off this week. Between now and then, I'd appreciate it if you check out our other podcast, Role Playing History. This week we get into Evil Hat Productions and we'll break down a couple of the very interesting yet very different games they produce. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or at our website, badgmproductions.net. All of the Deadlands classic materials we reference on the show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Pinnacle Entertainment Group and are used here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in buying these or any of their other fine products, head over to their website, peginc.com, and check them out. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music for your next project. Bad GM's campaign build along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube Bad GM Productions. You can email us at Bad GM Productions at gmail.com and online it's Bad GM Productions.net. Next week, we'll see if the group can track down Katie Sinclair, then see if they can finally get their hands on Ed Stewart. Will they succeed? <laughs> You're going to have to wait and see. But that's next week, partner. Until then, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the gaming table.